Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is Wednesday the 24th of February. I'm here to say with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary, thank you very much. Talking about people getting screwed over, Michael, the ISAG leaks. Ah, yes, this is all very... Um... Well, I imagine for, for certain people, Gary, it's a lot of fun, and for other people, not so much. It's not fun for me, Michael. I had to read hundreds upon hundreds of uh, just pages of conversation. Yeah, like, that's not fun for Gary. I mean, there are parts of it. There are certain comments where you see someone says something, and you're just like, beaten with sticks, you say. <laughs> yeah. And not just sticks, hurls as well. Hurls, yeah. And you sort of go, that's going to be a fun one to get a comment on. Um, but no, for, for those who haven't heard, what this relates to is Gript leaked an extensive amount of ISAG's internal documents. ISAG, for those who don't know, is the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. And they are a zero COVID um, advocacy group. They're becoming more and more influential in that their policies are starting to leak into government. But they're not called, the government is basically not saying they're coming from ISAG. And they're doing a lot of political meetings and they're sharpening their message and they're getting better at um, the actual campaign aspect of it. You've probably seen their members on TV or heard them on radio or seen pieces by them in the newspaper. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes acknowledging that they are members of ISAG, but not always. In fact, rather a lot of the time, there isn't any acknowledgement that the people writing the piece or coming on are involved in ISAC. So that's that's Grip's interest in it. Now, we published um, a piece on Friday, small piece, just to kind of get the ball rolling, basically looking at some of the claims that ISAC had made versus what they were talking about internally when they were made. And it was only, it was only a small piece, and I think I may have written it badly because I think people misunderstood it. People thought that I was saying, you know, these people aren't certain about what they're saying and that's terrible because I was talking about the, the internal discussion and stuff like that. That wasn't my point. What I actually wanted to bring people's attention to was that they were saying things to the public and to the Taoiseach. They'd written a private letter to the Taoiseach. In fact, I think they'd written at least two and I think three. And then when I questioned them about it, they, they would openly say, Oh, well, no, 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 there, there are these provisions, or actually it's this instead of that. So they were willing to make statements directly to the Taoiseach that when I talked to them, I very quickly got the sense that they could not stand over. And it didn't take a lot to get there. It was a sort of a, here's one question, oh no, not like that. And that I think is interesting for an advocacy group that is coming to influence things. And then the second story came out today, and that one was significantly more popular than the first one, possibly because it's a little bit easier to understand than the first one. Mm -hmm. A little bit more directly to the point. And the general gist of the one that went out, I suppose yesterday by the time you uh, this podcast goes out, was that ISAG had shared material which had said that ISAG members should look for ways to increase uncertainty, insecurity, and... Uh, Anxiety. Anxiety, thank you. You think I remember that having written it? There you go. And uh, the basic gist of this is that ISAG had had a discussion over um, 
a book called Rules for Radicals, which was written by Saul Alinsky, who's a left-wing labor organizer. And they had said that um, ISAC members need to review and internalize everything that's that's on this list of, of what are called uh, Saul Alinsky's rules, mm-hmm. or sometimes just the rules. And the problem there is that there's some weird stuff on that list for a health entity to be... Um, to be talking about and so they had shared the rules and then they shared some explore explanatory text about it so it was stuff like um you know look for ways to increase insecurity anxiety and uncertainty then they had stuff about how ridicule is man's most potent weapon then they had stuff about uh, you know the threat is more terrifying than the thing itself and how imagination can dream up consequences uh, more effectively than an activist saying things like enemies and the enemies needed to be personalized and um you you should go after people not institutions because you can break people easier the sort of stuff that um you don't want your health organizations talking about that got picked up quite quite rapidly that that has been a very successful story well picked up yes picked up a lot on social media yeah i mean like naomi wolf was talking about it stuff like that um hasn't been picked up on irish media yet in fact i put that out at half 12 today since then two at least two members of isag have been on national tv maybe three so tomas ryan was on and then anthony staines was on um the tonight show now the interesting thing is in the story i'd written i had named anthony staines because anthony staines shared the uh, the note which had told people to review and internalize these rules now that is a note from a meeting that isaac had mm-hmm. i think with a, a guy called dr gabriel scally who you may remember from the scally report into the cervical check cervical cancer yes yeah so it's entirely possible that that Anthony did not write this or if he did write it that he was quoting the result of the meeting so i don't want to say that Anthony told people to review and internalize these things, but rather that he, he shared it and that it said to uh, review and internalize these things. And um, it hasn't been mentioned at all. It's, it's curious, isn't it? You'd imagine that if uh, an advocacy group, and that's what it is after all, it's an advocacy group, it's not the government. It's not the government's policy group. It's not NEFIT. It's not the minister. It's not the HSE. It's an advocacy group. Saying something like that, you'd imagine when they were on a news program or a current affairs program on RT that somebody might say, well, lads, what's this story here now? What's that about? Uh, that sounds a bit odd, a bit uh, manipulative, a bit, a bit distasteful. I mean, you're, 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 sort of, you're the good guys. You're the guys in the white hats, aren't you? Why, what, what's... And yet, Gary, no. No comment. As far as I know, no other media source has these documents. So they wouldn't be able to prove the authenticity of the screenshots I put up or anything like that. But it would be trivially easy to actually deal with this because all you need to do is go to one of the two people I named in that piece and they've been all over the media. So I would imagine every media organization has their phone number on file. Yeah. And just go, can you deny that you did this? And if the answer is, I can't deny it, or I'm not going to talk about that, well, maybe that might be a bit of a hint. Yeah, then you have your story. 
Or at least you have something of a story. And I mean, here's the thing. These guys are on TV talking. There's been a lot of talk about the limitations of vaccination and stuff like that. And then you have an internal document which explicitly says, look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety and uncertainty. Yeah. And that strikes me as something that perhaps we might like to have further information on. Now, since the story has gone live, I had been talking to ISAG members because there's tons of stuff in the um, in the documents I have. And I've been giving them comments and I've been trying to be as fair as possible because some of the stuff is fairly damaging to personal uh, particular people in ISAG. And you, know, you don't want to publish anything without giving someone their fair shot of it. But as soon as I said what this was, everyone has gone dark. And I have seen ISAG members on Twitter and on social media and obviously on TV, and they're just ignoring any mention of it, which was quite impressive for a while because some of them were getting kind of slammed with messages about it. And they just, no, no comment, not even a no, just nothing but it's good media discipline because if they comment on it then they've kind of let the story out of the out of the reserved box out of the the cage and into the safari park it's out into the wild you know and force other uh, news outlets to actually talk about it but as long as everybody can pretend it didn't happen well then it it, it didn't happen no i mean when this went live i was talking to someone and they were asking what i thought would happen and i said i i think one of two things will happen one is they'll throw them under the bus immediately, just to get them away from them. And the second is that they'll go, we have given these people incredible levels of access to our programs and to our papers. And if we, if it now comes out that there was something there, or there's now a question where there was no question before, we could look bad. And if that's the view they take, they'll just ignore it. Now... I wouldn't be surprised if this gets into the Sunday papers. I think the the the, the Sunday by the time it gets it, by the time it gets to Friday, I think it it will be too much of a presence on social media. You reach a point where you can ignore it and ignore it and ignore it. I and I think that ultimately the pressure won't may not even come from media who may have their own reasons for being slow to report it. I think that there may be a political side to this that's going to be problematic. For keeping the story in the wraps, which is, I, I think you've probably had the same experience as me, Gary. Just talking to a couple of people, shall we say, backbenchers, uh, about this, just an impression that one had had over the last little while was that not an official zero COVID line, but that there was a movement in policy which seemed to be going more zero friendly, shall we say moving closer towards that position, that the language and the positioning seemed to be more similar than it had, had previously been to take a zero position. And I was talking to and they were saying, yeah, it's definitely, there's this, the buzz around the places that, that this is, seems there, there has been a shift. There's maybe not sort of tectonic, but a definite move in that direction. Now, if you're, if you're a backbencher, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and this comes out and the ordinary great unwashed are starting to read that they have been deliberately kept in a heightened state of fear and security and anxiety in order to forward uh, a policy. They don't like it, Gary. Now, you could say <clears throat> in the manner of Leo Strauss that this is a form of noble lie, that this is the kind of 
not exactly lie, but it's the kind of thing that sort of a less than frankness that you have to do in order to motivate people to do something which is in their interests and it is for their good, but that they themselves, because of human nature and impulses and a lack of understanding and a lack of expertise, they won't be able to fully grasp the fact that this unpleasant and difficult thing is what they actually need. So you have to withhold some things from them and let out other things. And I'm not saying actually lie, but that's the phrase that's used when people talk about Strauss, the, the Strauss or, the, or even Plato. It's this idea of a noble lie. You, you behave in this way in order to drive people towards the best outcome. As I say, the funny thing about the hyper is they don't like that, Gary. They don't like the feeling that they're thinking. I think that you may find that if, if, if anybody's going to break it, you're going to be some bolshie backbenchers, or indeed even bolshier independents, who might start jumping up and down and saying, what's the story here? Are these the people that are giving you advice? Are these the people you're listening to? Yeah, I mean, it, it has actually been interesting looking at the reactions, because obviously... Because it came from Gript, there's a certain amount of people who are just like, I don't care. I don't care what Gript says about things. They can't be trusted. And as I said to a couple of them just on social media, it was, it was like, lads, if the very fact I named people in this yeah. means if I can't stand over this, I'm fucked. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a lay down defamation. I'm not going to say absolutely in case it goes to the, in that direction, Michael. Having proof has never stopped anyone before. The papers may be on their way to you as we speak. Yeah, entirely. Uh, but this is not a, a small thing to do, to say this and then say, and this person distributed this document, and also this person gave them a copy of it, and give explicit names. So there is, I think there is, there is an assumption that I have a um, greater desire for self-destruction then I, I do have. It occurs to me now, there is another possibility, Gary. The whole thing is an elaborate elephant trap into which you have been lured in order to destroy you. Yeah, I mean, I, I was having a chat with that uh, about that with John McGurk, and the line I took was, John, if someone faked hundreds upon hundreds of pages of correspondence and sprinkled them with enough true material that when I chased it up, the people I talked to confirm those things would happen. In order to catch me in this outrageous lie, I couldn't even be angry about that. That is an incredible level of dedication. It sounds like the plot of a John le Carre novel. Now, the only actually thing that was annoying about it is people were asking about screenshots. And like this is part of the minutes of a meeting. So there's 350 words above it in the same note that aren't yeah. relevant. Mm-hmm. And then it shows the name and the photo of uh, of Anthony Stades. And people were like, would you not post the entire thing? I'm like, well, the entire thing is a photo of Anthony Stades, half a page of black, and then the exact same thing I just put up. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I get what you want. And you're like, oh, we, we've got to prove it. But let me assure you, the threat of legal uh, legal issues has been enough for me to check everything I say. Although it did actually annoy me, I couldn't get Anthony Staines to comment on it before it went live. I don't anything like this. I don't like actually publishing before they're commenting. But like, I left him multiple messages. I called him twice. Eventually, I had to go look at me. I'm going to publish in twenty minutes, and this is what it's going to say. So, you know, if you have a comment, send it now. Well, that's a probably a, pro a public interest defence. It's important 
that when you go to court, that you make that point now, Gary, that you did attempt to contact all the people involved to get a comment. They failed or refused to comment. And it was, you felt, a story very much of the public interest. So you never know. You might get away with it. I'm not actually worried about the legal aspect of it, really, at all. When I talk about comments, it's just I like to be as fair as possible with these people. I'm sure they feel that this is a personal thing I am doing to them. Uh And it's not. It's just a story. And on that basis, I, I want to give people as much chance as they can to actually have a chance to go, no, that's not what I meant. So you're saying, Gary, it's not personal, it's just business. It's not even business, Michael. It's just interest. Like I'm basically just a magpie and this was shiny. <laughs> that's about the long and the short of it. Like That's that's what I do. It's very shiny. There, There is there is more. It's likely by the time this podcast goes up, um, by the time the, the listeners hear it, there will be another story up, I think, John McGurk is working on something at the minute using the material I got. And I have another one uh, that I'm currently working on. I'm trying to get comments from all the people who said things because, I mean, there were comments in it about stuff like um, a reference that ISAG, uh, one of the members of ISAG wanted to to deal with someone using a hurley in an area with no witnesses. Stuff like that, that I'm perfectly willing to publish with their name attached to it. You know, I, I keep trying to get them a chance to kind of go, like, do you want to clarify this? Or even just like, I was joking. But uh, no, can't cannot make a horse drink, Michael. Yeah. My main interest now from this is obviously the grip stories are going to keep going moving forward because we've got tons of material. And at the end of it, uh, we're thinking about doing a document dump, but we'd have to go through it and we'd have to redact a lot of, of stuff and... We'd have to make sure there's no way of identifying the source from it and anything that could have inadvertently slipped in. But I'd like to do that at the end because then just you basically just go, all right, there's everything, lads. And, you know, you can do it yourself if you didn't trust us. But that is a surprising amount of work, so we might not do that. What I'm interested in seeing now is is what media picks this up and what media doesn't pick it up. Because, as I said, they don't have the documents, but they can call these people. They can just go, did you say this? And if they can't say, no, I didn't, I think you, you may want some follow-on questions. Particularly when you have, I mean, we, we need to understand to some extent what's behind the government thinking here. Are they relying completely on effort? Or are they getting information from other people which they're taking seriously? So we heard an announcement, well, announcement, pronouncement. I don't know, you heard it, Gary, that when we get into the winter, by which time, according to the latest pronouncements from both the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health, everybody will have been vaccinated that is willing to be vaccinated. We shouldn't think that it's going to be all over, Gary. We will be facing challenges and problems and issues. And you're thinking, well, will we? What What does that mean? What are, what, what stick now are we being threatened with? Um, one doesn't want to put on one's tinfoil hat, but you know those people out there who say, not necessarily the people who say that the whole thing is a pandemic invented in order to create some kind of power grab for centralising government for politicians, but we do know that historically when politicians get hold of a certain amount of power that they're not historically used to having, they don't like to give it back. That 
you know, if if they're starting to talk in these terms of well, winter, but you know, winter, Gary, winter in Ireland starts sometime in October and goes through usually to the beginning of April. Winter is a long time. So are we talking about like April twenty twenty? What 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 is the thinking behind that? I think it's reasonable for us to try to understand what is the advice that the government is receiving and who are they listening to? What are they taking into account in order to devise? the uh, the plans that they have in store for us i mean, I, I read Mio merton's speech that he gave today i wasn't going to listen to it because i'm just not going to do that because why would you do that but i read the transcript of it and there's a couple of things i noted about it one is that they do the thing it, it does the thing that some people think is necessary when you're talking about statistics which is to give very exact but slightly odd numbers about things so that the listener yeah. assumes you know what you're talking about so it's something like up to 47 percent of people over 18 would have had their first dose by the end of april it, yeah it creates the perception of competence and expertise that's the theory of it yeah and then like by the end of may up to 64 percent the end of june 82 percent of adults yeah, and it's always a terrible idea, um, on a practical level, because you will forget those numbers. You can remember forty, sixty, eighty pretty quickly, but you've got a lot of other stuff you're doing. Are you going to remember forty-seven, sixty-four, eighty-two? I would doubt it. Yeah, and then as we said before in the last podcast, the problem then is you're faced with it. If you come even very close to it, but you don't actually get there, then you failed. So why set yourself up for failure unless you're deliberately choosing numbers that you feel are so low that you'll actually surpass them? Which, which I don't think that's what they're doing here. Also, the numbers don't quite work, it seems to me, on the basis of the numbers they're talking about. If they're talking about from April on giving a million shots, I, I, don't, see, I don't see that the numbers are quite right. But anyway, uh, it is what it is. I think uh, there was very little. What I think has been a missed opportunity, and this is just a personal thing there's been no there's been no attempt really except for just sort of banal things on social media and posters here and there sort of we're all in this together but there hasn't been a real attempt for politicians to come out and speak directly to people to tell them the truth and say okay this is what we need you to do and they explain why they're doing it to go through a real proper call to our, and also to do things to to create opportunities for people to be active in actively involved in doing something positive that's why for example we, we mentioned in the last podcast the brits got involved in this thing about oh god last november they were speaking to the john's ambulance people about training thirty thousand people to be volunteer vaccinators right now to me that's not as that's not necessarily as much about the necessity to get volunteer vaccinators although in israel they, they have used them i think it's been perhaps part of the reason why they've been able to get the numbers that they have been able to, to hit in Israel. But if you consider the, the numbers of people in the country who are active or just simply retired, just the number of retired nurses in the country that I'm sure will be willing to come out and help out in this situation, civically minded people, doctors, dentists, paramedics, physiotherapists, etc., etc., vets, that could give it and could who are, are, are currently who were retired but would come out to tell about if they, you, you get volunteers, in, it's, it, it's as much about getting people involved, a sense of the nation working together to achieve something rather than 
most people, Gary, I don't know if this is your experience of talking to people, most people, the people I talk to, there's a real sense that this is something which is being done to us. It is, it is interesting in that I've talked to a number of TDs on this, both involved in the governing parties and outside of them. And there was just a general acceptance that this had not been handled well. Just the actual communication aspect and, and the plan of it, of what is actually happening here. Like, what are we doing? It's kind of a bit all over the place. And I think that's actually, that's been to the great advantage of um, ISAG and the zero COVID people, because the government has been so purr at putting their own point of view forward and making it look like they know what's happening. That anyone who can speak competently, even if they've no real data to back them up and pretty much just an assumption, can look pretty good. And I, as I said, reading like Martin's, cur- the speech he just put out, it's a, it is firstly a terrible speech, just to, to put that out there. It's a speech going with a plan which just regurgitates half the plan and at points just lists dates and then says on this date we will be doing this and then on this date we'll be doing this and that's not what a speech is for you know you know those meetings you go to and the guy has the powerpoint because you have to have a powerpoint but the only thing the powerpoint is is a series of slides where he has written down all the things he's going to say yeah and it's just really boring and tedious and unnecessary it was a bit like that you felt Michal, all of this could be just put in a sheet with a couple of graphs. Why, why do we, we don't, this is not a speech. This is, this is, a, this is a series of data points. This is not a call to arms. This is not the Gettysburg Address. This is not Lincoln's second inaugural. The advantage that ISAC have is that they do have a sense of what they want to do. Oh yeah, they have no, they've no, data or proof behind a lot of what they're saying but they've a really strong i'd say nearly religious faith in what they're doing they have a deep conviction uh, and they have a place where they, they have a sense i wouldn't they don't have what you could call a detailed plan they don't have numbers they don't have things but they have a, a shape and if you have a government if there's a government you can say is either it's nimble and responsive to change or it's a, it's a boat cast around on heavy seas being pushed this way and that by the wind. Uh, right now, I'd say that the perception uh, one has of this government is that it, it is a ship being pushed this way and that. And there isn't a really a strong sense that they have a, a, a fixed point in their minds to which they're going to get and a sense of how they're going to get there. That may be wrong. They may have that, but if they have that, they're not communicating that. Well, any any of the people you've talked to, Michael, in Finnafall, either TD or activist, have they had a sense that Finnafall knows what it's doing with this, that they are in control? No, not that they're in control. And one of the problems is that there's there are too many conflicting comments. There are people coming out one day saying this, and then they're coming out in the next one. Like Norma Foley, and I'm not, <coughs> not blaming her for it in a sense. I mean, things change but it seems like every time Norma makes a statement about we're going to do this within three days this has been qualified we're going to do this but we're not going to do it quite like that we're going to do it like this and then we're not going to do all the classes we're going to go 
we're going to do some classes and then we're going to not some classes we're going to do just the leaving search and then we're going to see how things go and we're going to do special schools we're going to do some special it, it just feels like it not that it's a bad thing that it changes because it should change in response to the data but it changes too quickly and they don't give themselves enough room in their initial position to allow for that change to be seen as part of an organic thing but rather it's oh god we've changed our minds we've changed direction and we're going this way rather than that way and that doesn't give you the sense of people who are in control it's people who are reactive rather than in their awful phrase they're not being proactive they're just simply being reactive and again that may be unfair maybe they're behind all of this but if that is the case then there's a terrible failure of communications and i don't think this is simply a failure of communications i think there's a failure but my point was simply this that and this is true generally of politics that if you meet politicians who don't have any oh particular philosophical or ideological commitment to anything and you meet they meet come up against a group which has an explanation a global view a way of understanding everything and a plan to get where they're going to go that can be very impressive to politicians who are desperately looking for something like that they don't, because they don't have it and if you meet people and these people are bright clever credentialed credible people there's no doubt about that gary i mean these are not gobdaws people in eyesight they're perfectly they're credible bright credentialed people and i can see that they would impress politicians particularly because they have this rock hard conviction and that can be very attractive to all human beings that sense of certainty this is how we'll do it this is how we're going to achieve it and they go oh right yeah and they they, they do have that michael i i have read i'd say at least i'd say over half a thousand over five maybe five six hundred pages of material from isaac covering months months upon months and at no time have i seen in their private messages have I seen any member of ISAG express any doubt, any doubt about the correctness of they, what they were doing, regardless of what happened? So first, vaccines won't happen. Then vaccines are happening. Does that cause any question? It does, but only on the nature of how they can start telling people that the vaccine isn't enough and that it'll be a leaky vaccine that... Um, you know, they've got to convince people that you can't end the lockdown when a certain amount are vaccinated. But never, never is there any doubt about the mission itself. That's what I find problematic or worrying. I, I remember talking to a couple of lads. I don't think even at the time, I don't know if they, if we had zero COVID as a name yet. I don't, but this back sort of around Novemberish time. And the subject had come up previously in conversations that they were sceptical about the idea, like a lot of people were sceptical, and correctly so, about the possibility of developing an effective vaccine in this kind of timescale, you know? Because it was perfectly reasonable. It had taken years and years previously to develop vaccines, and who knows how effective they were going to be, if they were 50 60%, how, you know, what would that mean, and so on. But at this stage, it was looking like we were going to have at least a handful of vaccines that were going to work and they were going to work well and have high levels of effectiveness and what really struck me as odd because on the face of it it just didn't seem to make sense to me and that may well be because i just missed the point it may well be that i'm 
continuing to miss the point, but it didn't make sense to me when one of them said to me, yeah, yeah, but the vaccine really doesn't, doesn't actually change anything. I, I thought, well, how, how could it not change it? I mean, I saw, the, the, there was a comment from one of the ISAG members in their in their private messages that started talking about the vaccine as a false messiah weird weird language for a health conversation like and not just like a mention like a full thing on on the topic of of that false messiah and it's it gets a bit like there's a certain level of belief you should have in your cause and but internal internal debates always happen, and when circumstances change, like when we were talking about the vaccine, Michael, I remember talking about the vaccine and saying it's incredibly unlikely that a vaccine will be produced quickly enough based on what we have seen of the standard pathway to vaccines, and then there were a lot of regulatory changes, and it was done, but it was highly unexpected at the time, which I think people are already attempting to forget, and that didn't didn't even upset the car. But then you look back and you see comments, and I we haven't put this out publicly yet, but there are comments in some of the ISAG messages where people were saying things like that um, they shouldn't ask politicians explicitly to endorse zero COVID policies because they didn't feel they had enough evidence that they would be able to convince these people that the policies they were advocating wouldn't bankrupt the country. Right. That's a... You know... That's a, that 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 should be important. It really, that really should be a consideration. Well, but there was an absolute belief that, of course, it wouldn't, until someone had to go. Yeah, but when we're talking to actual people, we don't actually have the evidence for that. ISAG still don't have an economist on board. Yeah, they've tried to get multiple economists on board, and it has not. Um... No, Michael, it just hasn't come together. Oh, do you want do you want a little bit of uh, just a, a little bit of funny news before we? So Politico um, did a little bit. They got a copy of the UK's um, a redacted version of the UK's contract with AstraZeneca, and they had a um, they had a contract law specialist look over it. And um, what they found is that obviously there are differences between them because the UK contract is is written for British law. Or for English law. But the difference, they said, was that um, the UK contract was more detailed. They were quite similar, but the UK contract was more detailed in terms of the deliverables and the oversight of that. So, <clears throat> the way they phrased it was that the core difference can be chalked up to the fact that the contract sealed with London was written by people with significant experience of purchasing agreements. Ah. especially specifically drug buying deals the european commission's contract by contrast showed a lack of commercial common sense in the lawyer's view so they say that the uk contract said that if any party tries to force or persuade astrazeneca or the subcontractors to do anything that could hold up the supply of the vaccine doses the government can terminate the deal but also invoke what Politico say appear to be punishment clauses, although those are largely redacted. Oh. The EU, on the other hand, can only withhold payment, but as we said, it's enough for profit arrangement, so it doesn't actually do anything to, to AstraZeneca. And they, 
they weighed their right to sue AstraZeneca for delivery delays. So... <laughs> so it looks like, remember we were saying before that there was the, the word was going around Germany uh, that not only was the, the, the Brussels contract uh, uh, badly drafted, but the English contract was different and different in, a, in, in, an, in important details. That seems that maybe they were right. I at the time was skeptical about that. But. Yeah, so it looks like the British, because the, the British heavily involved uh, people from the private sector in this who had experience with this. And so it looks like they actually came through shockingly solidly. But even things like the UK contract apparently goes through the entirety of the supply chain of the vaccine rather than just says you will you will give us this amount of doses. The UK specifies where this will be made and what happens if it can't be made there and exactly who will be blamed if that happens and all of that. And, and you know, what happens if the supply chain isn't sufficient? What happens then and who is punished? And then they have apparently these punishment clauses and they did not waive the right to actually bring this to a court. If you're you know, buying hundreds of millions of vaccines, a handshake deal with a pharmaceutical agency is not the way to go, but perhaps actually talking to people who have experience in, um, I thought that was, that was an absolutely damning line, actually, that, um, the significant difference is that the contract in London was written by people with significant experience of purchasing agreements, which sort of indicates that the people who signed the EU had no fucking idea what they were doing. Well, you see, that's not exactly true, is it? Because, as we know, Ursula had very significant experience of being involved or overseeing uh, procurement contracts. It's just that she was very, very bad at it. So bad at it, she had to escape to Europe. There is this, this wonderful thing where it turns out the EU may have been right about some of the stuff they said about AstraZeneca and that AstraZeneca may have overpromised and all of these things. And now, of course, there's a debate about whether or not AstraZeneca will be short in Q2. And AstraZeneca, this is all developing very rapidly when we're recording it. So by the time you hear this, this might be out of date. But, I mean, it had been claimed they would be 50% shy. Now AstraZeneca are just after coming out and saying, that's not true. It's going to be, you know, we're going to meet our obligations. And what they mean by obligation is obviously that'll be interesting to see. It looks like what we thought it was is a shit show. So, yeah, it looks like the EU was actually correct in some of what it was saying and AstraZeneca was correct in some of it was saying. And then you just see the, the part which the EU redacted when it released the contract, even accidentally, which says that the EU waives the right to, to bring this to court. And you sort of go, well, it doesn't really fucking matter if you're right then, does it? Because you've just waived your rights to do anything about it. And there's nothing you can do to AstraZeneca if they don't abide by it. And then you go, how dare they be dealing with the English? You know, this is outrageous. This is some sort of nationalism. And then you go, well, actually, the English contract has penalties and yours doesn't. So regardless of the right or the wrong of it, this is only ever really going to go one way, isn't it? Yeah, what you're left with there is the warm knowledge that you were right. But that's it. You were right, but you also signed something saying that it didn't matter if you were right. Kind of knocks the arse out of it. Yeah, there's a sort of, you know, we, we've got the moral high ground, and please don't look behind it. So we were talking a while ago about uh, vitamin D, 
and how the evidence on vitamin D in relation to COVID-19 at that point wasn't amazing. Still doesn't, like it's, it's not where you'd want to be in the normal course of affairs to uh, recommend anything. But we said, look, 40% of the Irish population was vitamin D deficient before we started locking everyone inside their houses. At the very worst, it will do no harm. You would expect it to deal with some of the deficiency. And there is some promising results in relation to COVID-19. And that probably means it's worth the government recommending that people take it as part of um, as part of its policies on COVID-19. Just on a balance of probability. And if you're wrong, it does no harm at all. So, you know, that is your counterpoint here. And we were saying about that. And then I think we saw one or two TDs shortly thereafter stand up and say they wanted to see the government look into this more. And then... The other day, saw there was a joint Uchtdorf's uh, committee on health, and uh, Dr. Daniel McCarthy, who's the director of human nutrition and dietetics at Trinity, came on there and said that um, it looks like there's a ten percent reduction in risk of repository infection amongst people taking vitamin D supplements, and a more than fifty percent reduction in risk amongst those with low vitamin D levels to begin with which, as I said before, was about 40% of the Irish population before we started doing this. And the general uh, opinion of the experts there was that vitamin, vitamin D supplements should be part of COVID-19 policy, which is exactly what we were saying. And um, as I and Michael were discussing this before the show, we came back to the old general line of, we shouldn't be right. And we shouldn't be right before the health authorities. The vitamin D thing has been going on really pretty well since the thing started. And we're getting on, it's almost a year ago now that uh, we started to talk seriously about this. And I'm sure that pretty soon people started talking about the value of taking vitamin D. Even just in a general sense, the observation was that vitamin D is, is useful for providing a degree of protection, or at least that vitamin D deficiency was a negative for people who are trying to fight off viral infections, and particularly respiratory viral infections. So that in this case, it, it seemed like a reasonable thing to imagine that it would be a good thing to do was to get people up. There was a, a paper published in the Irish Medical Journal, um, volume 113, for those who want to check it up, um, authored by, I imagine the same man, Dr. D.M. McCartney and Dr. and uh, D.G. Byrne, the Biological School of Health Sciences, where they, they point out that vitamin D deficiency is common in Ireland. And here's, shall we say, the kicker, especially amongst older adults, hospital inpatients and nursing home re residents. Now, that that's kind of important, is it not? And they make the point, vitamin D supplementation has been shown to reduce the risk of respiratory infection. And that was generally true. So everything seems to be happening in slow motion. I was saying to you before, Gary, the thing is, I mean, we obviously, you try to be fair about things, you know, because I am certain that there were things that we talked about and thought might be a good idea, thought things were a bad idea, we turned out to be wrong about. This is the novel coronavirus. It's the COVID-19. It's a pandemic. This is something none of... Nobody alive today has that's involved in the management of this and has seen this kind of thing before. So what people are going to learn doing. But there are certain things that on the face of it, you would have thought we, the mask thing. Now, maybe the mask thing is slightly different, but 
or when we discussed this quite some time ago, quite some time ago now, we said, well, you know, there is some reasonable stuff out there which suggests that the masks can have an effect on infection, but particularly on prevention of transmission for people or people who, who, who are infected already. And even if that is as low as 10%, well, that's considering the cost of wearing a mask while you're in the presence of other people, you know, it's a, it's, it, it's not, it, it doesn't cost you much either in financial terms or in other ways. So why not just do it? And if it, if it didn't do anything well, sure, we haven't lost anything. It's not like it was, a, it's not like closing a school or closing a business on the basis that we don't really know, but we think this might do something. The wearing of a mask. Now, as regards vitamin D, even more so, because people have issues around masks and they're uncomfortable, taking a vitamin D supplement in a country where there is a, there's a fairly, it's a, it's something which is just indigenous, fairly stuck in this, in, in Ireland, and a lot of us have a deficiency in, in, in vitamin D. Vitamin D intakes, as says in the conclusions, vitamin D intakes and stasis are low in Ireland. So it probably wouldn't be a bad idea if we all took supplements anyway. And it turns out there are very serious potential upsides to taking vitamin D. What the downsides were, I don't. I, I have yet to hear anybody articulate a downside to taking a, a vitamin D supplement. It's not expensive, and particularly if it was done at a global level. I say global level, I mean globally with the country. It could have been done for very small money indeed. It's, it's, why is it taking us this long to get to the point where they're going to the doll and saying, you know, this will be a good idea. Maybe we should, we should consider this as part of our strategy. I know it, it feels like maybe we're just picking, picking all the time, but God, lads. Yeah, it's it's one of those odd things, and I, I think it relates back to their to their views on risk that there needs to be absolute proof before recommending anything, even when we can say on the balance of probability this is a positive move and there appear to be no harmful effects from this and the unit price is incredibly low. Rather, So they're not balancing things, they're just saying we'll only go if there's absolute proof. And what we've seen from this is by the time you have absolute proof, it's six months down the line and things have just gotten totally out of control. And then you have to do something more radical in a hurry and someone just ends up getting screwed over. That seems to be the way of it. Yeah, I'm more and more I'm being attracted to the idea of sort of benign, a benign dictatorship. It's always been the first part of that that's been quite difficult to you know, keep. I would be very benign. As long as nobody annoyed me, I would be very benign. How long do you think it would take you to go mad with power? Mm, six months. I mean, it'd be good six months. Oh, it'd be fantastic. It'd be brilliant. You know, I'd do more, I would do so many good things, Gary, and I'd accept the reality. Things would go maybe a little bit hairy after that and somebody would end up assassinating me. But, you know, I would have had my, what, 12 months as being king. The country would have had six months of really good stuff being done. And at the end of the day, maybe it's worth a try. I mean, you just need to get on top. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm leaving that alone. Anyway. <laughs> no, you'll never get on top leaving it alone. And I think it's time to say goodbye to the nice listeners. Uh, we have covered everything we wanted to cover. And we shall be back on Friday, uh, by which time there perhaps will be more re revelations in the ongoing ISAC story. And 
maybe others maybe somebody will have been given planning permission to build a, bung- a bungalow near listeners key but if that has happened we will report on it if not i will bid you adieu and mind yourselves all the best all the best even <laughs>